Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with film critic Keith Ulick. I have flashes of uh, remembering my first experience with Kubrick. You know, so basically, I wouldn't say it's a single film. It's sort of like, you know, images from them. And I guess the one that's most prevalent in my mind is a pan and scan VHS copy of the 2001 docking sequence set to the Blue Danube. Um, I don't know where I saw it. It might have been on a friend's computer. It might not have even have been the first time that I, um, you know, saw a Kubrick film uh, in, in some way, shape, or form. But that, for whatever reason, is the moment that, you know, this this image that was, of course, degraded because, you know, you need to see a 2001 widescreen, you know, and, and that sequence loses something. And yet, encountering it for the first time in that form made an impression. Um, and so then eventually I got around to seeing, you know, uh, it in that way. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of like my first encounter with Kubrick. And I can tell you, and I guess when we get to, you know, the proper point, I, I can tell you exactly where I was when I knew that Kubrick was dead. So uh, whenever whenever that comes up, if you want me to say it now, I will. If you want me to hold off, I can No, go, go ahead. We, we, I, I can edit around this. We can, we can go in whatever chron- chronological order you'd like. So tell me okay. about Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, so I told you my first encounter there, but the, uh, basically, um, of course, he died in 99, right, um, a few months before the release of Eyes Wide Shut, and I was working with um, Tom Noonan at that point, who I'm sure, being movie geeks, you all know, um, mm-hmm. and uh, he was directing a film that never got released called Wang Dang, and that was um, up in uh, we were up in Liberty, New York. And I was the assistant camera on that shoot, and we were driving the equipment up from the city. So I remember the middle of the night, kind of cold out and everything. Um, and uh, the people were, I was in the van with, we had the, we had the radio on, um, and we were flipping around. And uh, suddenly I heard um, a broadcast from um, a familiar sounding broadcast, and it was a clip from The Shining. Um, and I think he was like, you know, Wendy, give me the bat. Wendy, give me the bat. Wendy, give me the bat. You know, and all that. And I was like, oh, that's that's Kubrick. What's this going on? Um, you know, and and uh, and it was just like so they were playing. Give me the bat, Wendy. Give me the bat. Um, and then and 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 then it, and then it was just like uh, the announcer came back on and just said he was 72 or something like that. You know, they didn't even say the name or, or however old Kubrick was when he died. I forget the exact age. Um, but um, it, maybe you have it there. He was but, 70, uh, yeah. He was 70. He was 70 years old. And I was like, and they didn't even say who it was who died. So I was kind of like thinking, did Kubrick die? What? 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 You know, and so then we were like, we kept the radio on the same station, hoping they'd come back around to the story. And I think they eventually did. And we got it confirmed indeed that Kubrick had died. 
Um, so, uh, you know, and, and that was, you know, so we were just in the midst of this kind of lonely road going upstate and, uh, heard the news and, you know, he was a hero to me even at that point. I was really, really looking forward to Eyes Wide Shut and I just, uh, you know, was, was devastated because, um, you know, yeah. So. And it doesn't seem it didn't seem like someone that we ever considered could die. You know, he he's so kind of oh, mythic yeah. in a way. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, uh, and yeah, just like because of his reclusiveness, because of his relatively small filmography and everything, um, you know, in terms of like how many films he made and such, and how iconic so many of them were. Uh, you know, I mean, I think at that point I, I had kind of resigned my, you know, I, I'd resigned myself that people died no matter what. I think I had lost a lot of, uh, you know, uh, film mentors who I who I'd never met, obviously, but you know, just the people who I loved in in movies. You know, I just I realized they were fallible. I think, but still, you know, it's kind of like when it happens, you're kind of like, no, you know, mm-hmm. um, and especially, I mean, in that case, I think it probably hits. Uh, pretty deep because um, you know Eyes Wide Shut was not released. So of course my first sauce, which I guess shows you know, and I bet it was a lot of cinephiles' thoughts. And you know, you don't know a person, but you know their movies. It's kind of like, oh my God, is Eyes Wide Shut complete? You know, that was mm-hmm. like that was my first thought. It wasn't, oh, I feel sorry for his family. It's like, oh my God, the movie. What's going to happen with the movie? You know, um, and uh, well. There's arguments still about that, I think, but uh, you know, I yeah. guess that's for later. Yeah. Um, when, when you so. think about Kubrick's films, mm-hmm. and maybe this is splitting hairs, but when, when you reminisce about the movies that moved you in your life, do you reminisce differently about Kubrick's films uh, because he was such a strong visualist? Uh, yeah. Obviously, he came from photography, um, and when I remember Kubrick's films in my memory I see still shots from the film I see those perfectly composed unforgettable images that kind of sear in your brain yeah yeah um do I think differently about him I would just say it's my tendency to um try and take each uh filmmaker um you know as they are individually you know and and so I think I reminisce you know, about him uniquely because he is such a unique artist. Um, and uh, and also, I mean, I would say that perhaps I give him prominence at times because he was a big influence on uh, me and my way of thinking and, uh, and, and and my recognizing film as an, as an art form worthy of study and everything, or worthy of devotion, I would even say, because I think there's definitely you know, a uh, spiritualist as- aspect to his films that really gets to me. Um, you know, even, you know, everybody talks about the cold distancing, but I really feel like there's a hand of God aspect to to the films, too, that you can feel. Not necessarily with him as God, but, you know, just there's something there's something primal and holy about those films in some way, and especially coming across them as I did when I was, when I was younger, for sure. Um, so, you know, I, I I certainly think of him, I think on him, as I as I do on people like Tarkovsky or David Lynch, um, people who had tremendous influence on me as a young man, and so as a result, um, you know, I I 
I think I think I think on him very fondly in that regard. Um, well, at the same time, you know, I think uh, all of the films have really held up for me under subsequent viewings, um, save for uh, Clockwork Orange, strangely, um, which which is actually um, you know the la- you know what it's do a revisit. This is not. Uh, I, I think it, I think it's wrong to say that, oh, I used to love this film and now I don't love this film. It's kind of like, well, you know, it's a weird relationship I have with that film. I've been really up on it. I mean, I used it in a high school project, actually. And I know part of it was just so I could show the sex scenes in class and kind of, like, get people all riled up and stuff. I mean, a lot of it was shock value. And I think in, then in watching it, I think it was maybe like a year or two ago, I kind of found myself put off by it in a strange way. And uh, that, But that one is do a review. All the other ones have really held up for me um, in their own way, most especially, I'd say, Barry Lyndon and Eyes Wide Shut, um, and, and 2001, which is one of my all-time favorites. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. before we get into filmography, you had alluded to something. How How specifically, if you can define it, did Kubrick kind of changed the way you you look at and appreciate movies tremendously um god just like you know the you encounter 2001 as a neophyte cinephile and it blows your mind i think you know if you don't really have anything else to you know uh, compare it with. I mean, it's interesting to read like Andrew Saris and Pauline Kael on the film, and of course they don't like it very much, and I believe that um, Saris said that the ending was instant Ingmar in reference to uh, Ingmar Bergman, and you know, Kael thought that uh, um, that Kubrick had lost the snap that he brought to Lolita and uh, Dr. Strangelove. Um, so, I mean, they were coming from a kind of thing. They had been, uh, they had been going through the 60s art cinema and probably saw some of the things that Kubrick was perhaps uh, trending on, you know, at the time, if you, if you want to call it that. I mean, albeit I, I still kind of feel that that film and Kubrick's films in general hold up, um, you know, on, on their own wavelengths completely. You know, if they were influenced by anything, you know, or if they are re reusing tropes of of a certain time period or whatever i think they also go beyond that time period and their strengths you know at least for me um and uh you know seeing 2001 in full and kind of being like you know given this this kind of anti-narrative with like you start with apes and then you go into this whole story with like you know, that of course I mean you get the this, the the bone to the spaceship you get the docking sequence you get this Dr. Haywood Floyd sequence and then suddenly you know Dr. Haywood Floyd is gone and then suddenly you're with Dave Bowman and um, and Gary Lockwood's character whose name I've completely forgotten but um, and then and then you know there's the whole thing with Hal and then it's like you go through the space portal that just seems to go on forever and ever, and then it's like suddenly you're in a Victorian room, and then there's a child floating through space, and that's the end. It's like what? You know, even if you're not on, even if you're not on drugs, you know, if you're if you're a child or you know just a but burgeoning cinephile, it's kind of like what the fuck is this? You know, it's, it's, it's I don't, I, and yet, and yet. It, it's so it's so damn inspiring, you know, uh, to be confused. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think that's I think that I think that's the thing. There seems to be um, less. Well, 
you know what? I, I don't want to speak for for what an audience is really really what an audience's feelings are in 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 large, but it does seem like uh, it's difficult for a lot of people to be confused. I mean, you know, the fact that people were coming out of Inception when I saw it and were like saying, God, that was so complicated. And I was like, Jesus Christ, there's nothing complicated about that movie whatsoever. <laughs> you know? and, 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 and yet, you know, it just seems like the tolerance for being confused and, and, and being like pleasantly confused in a sense, like, God, I don't know what to make of that. And yet you feel like you're, it's kind of like what Jacques Rivette says about the Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me by David Lynch, where he said, you know, I, I, I understood absolutely nothing that I saw on screen, but I came out feeling like I was floating 10 feet above the ground. You know, oh, I, I, think, mm-hmm. I think that is, if that describes how Kubrick makes me feel at his best, which is often, you know, that would be, I, I, would, I would, you know, uh, steal that description from Rivette, but I steal a lot from Rivette. I think, in terms of that, so <laughs> in terms of critical acumen. But. Well, you know, you you talked about the audience not wanting to be confused by a film, and I think mm-hmm. that audiences were were mystified by a lot of his movies because yeah, they mystific- weren't. And mystification is a better word, so let me parrot that from you. <laughs> no problem, because yeah. their audiences typically are in all the films that were shown are are typically programmed. On, on how to feel. Yeah, th- this right. is how you're supposed to feel in this sequence. Kubrick right. didn't do that, and I think when you spoke about there's something <clears throat> like touch uh, the hand of God kind of guiding these kinds of films, I think yeah. a lot of his films, and this is the criticism that his movies seem distant, I think they are shown from like a, a, a God's eye kind of point of view. They, they're not afraid sure. of ambiguity. Right. Um, or real you know real in a sense perhaps old testament harshness in some cases i mean the way he shoots the the maze and the shining from above you know it's like when jack nicholson is looking down at the um the model maze and then Kubrick cuts an overhead shot and you realize actually that what you're looking at is not the model maze anymore, but a really high shot of the actual maze with Wendy and Danny, you know, working their way through it. You know, that that kind of like is a very key image, I think. You know, to understand to understand Kubrick, it's kind of like, you know, it's it's really it's really harsh, and yet it is moving in closer, and it does bring you closer, and then and and you know, and then it brings you close, and when you get there, you get like these really raw bursts of emotion at times. You know, and I think like. And oftentimes, I think the effect is that he—he's that he's holding back, and then he's going to unleash it at just the right time. And it's just kind of like, you know, the the end of Paths of Glory, you know, is with the flourish, kind of with the with the with the singing girl in the bar, or the um, the end of Barry Lyndon, which I cry maniacally at every time I see. I mean, I don't think there is any really 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 there's no. There's no there, there's no uh, released emotion in the film. It's like all held back, and yet it all builds to that moment of com- just just Lady Lyndon just kind of like seeing Barry's name on the on the check on the checkbook, you know, that she's going to write the check to. And there's like this, it's just kind of like you want her to release, to release, to release, and she doesn't do it. And and that you know, in confidence, everything that came before it just just 
destroys you or destroys me. I mean, it destroys you. I'm, I'm speaking for myself here, but, you know, I, I get to the end of that, and it's like all the three hours of buildup, it's like, you know, out comes this, this river flow. You know, it's like very few films, very few films elicit that in me. I would say that, you know, the only other film that makes me cry like as as if it's like you know a Pavlov's dog kind of reaction like that at the very end is the New World by Malick. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, I I just feel like that last section with Pocahontas and in the New World, you know, as as she is running around with the child and then Christian Bale like you know says you know the line that always gets me in that is uh, um, when 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 he says she gently reminded me that all things must die and at that point. Bam! I'm like I'm like reduced to tears, you know, and I'm I'm a blubbering mess. And, and <laughs> Barry Lyndon is the same thing, um, you know. I probably I you know maybe maybe there's something about repressed costume dramas or something that that really gets to me. I mean, you could probably psychoanalyze me something fierce with with my love of, of costume <laughs> genre pictures like that. So, but maybe, maybe I'll leave that to uh, you know uh, to the to the doctors. <laughs> yeah. But the, just like the New World, there is something transcendent about uh, about Kubrick films. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, we'll get to 2001, but prior to 2001, I'm just going to name these titles and 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 get your comments on them. Sure. Uh, you said that you saw Fear and Desire, which is a movie that he feared and did not desire to be yeah. show to the public. Uh, yeah, and very unfortunate. Um, it kind of, I mean, I, I should preface. I mean, I haven't, I haven't watched a lot of these films in in a little while. I mean, I have a good memory of a lot of them. I would say, of Fear and Desire, first of all, it's notable because Paul Mazursky is in it um, as one of the soldiers, as I recall. Um, uh, at least I think it's him. Um, yeah, it I mean, is. Yeah. One, yeah, it is. There you go. Thank you. So I'm wondering, my mind's going to be playing tricks on me. Um, but uh, but also, like I say, I think it's kind of a dry run for Paths of Glory. Um, you know, in terms of the situation these soldiers get themselves into, um, I think it has something to do with a girl, doesn't it? Yeah, and see, I'm, yes. I'm forgetting now. Yeah, and it's like, and I, I don't know if it's a rape or, or they, they take her prisoner or something or, uh, you know, and, and, and it feels very much uh, of him. You know, and uh, I guess you could say he refined things from there, but you know, um, it, it's uh, it's certainly a it's certainly a movie uh, worthy of him, I would say, uh, absolutely. So, um, yeah, Killer's Kiss. Killer's Kiss. Um, also, strike. You know, it's like Fear and Desire and Killer's Kiss show the promise and the tremendous promise that was fulfilled, I think. And, of course, in retrospect, you see that there. Um, and in Killer's Kiss, you know, I think it's a, it's a, it's a striking noir film, and, uh, and, and it, of course, has this great um, final, like, battle in the mannequin factory, which is, it, it, it's kind of like, it's kind of like if you imagine uh, 
the 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 pie fight that was cut from Doctor Strange Love sort of played you know straighter or something you know I, I mean there's still a comic a- affect to it because it's kind of like here are these guys knocking each other with mannequin parts I think a guy gets stabbed in it or something or there's some kind of impaling or something at the end you know that, that the bad guy dies you know and it's like again my mind could be playing tricks on me but I think that's probably appropriate with Kubrick you know that your mind gets fucked with you know in some ways you think you you think you dream something that uh, that maybe you didn't even see or you or that you didn't want to see i don't know but i mean uh you know yeah killers i mean killers kids and fear and desire would be very interesting to screen as kind of like a really early kubrick that then i think you know gets uh starts to really get refined with the killing which i'm assuming you'd ask about next yes <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yes the killing um you know again like Taking those those first two films and and uh, you know this noirish uh, heist thing and uh, just running with it. Sterling Hayden, great locations shooting, great. I mean, you know, uh, for a man who was known as a recluse, he could certainly shoot Manhattan um, uh, at the time. You know, in in very evocative ways. Um, and. Uh, as as I recall, that's the first is that the first film that he does with Timothy Carey? Um, yes, it is. Who's also in Path of Glory? Yeah. Uh, so you get you know Timothy Carey weirdness in in supporting role, which is which is always great. You know Kubrick knew how to do the the kind of strange um, um, the, the the strange supporting roles, like you know like Alan Cumming in Eyes Wide Shut or um, uh, Patrick McGee and. Uh, in Clockwork Orange, you know, that these just kind of crazy supporting characters that just kind of imprint themselves on your, on your, uh, on your memory. Um, you know, it, and, uh, God, uh, Lolita, um, Shelley Winters. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. just, just, just like, just like, the most bizarre, you know, he just lets people go in ways that that, that just that, that you're that just that just imprint themselves on you, you know. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the killing. <laughs> well, well, let me let me ask you this. Uh, also, one thing, yeah. oh, see if you have a theory or uh, maybe a thought on this, and that the killing is also the first real uh, first time of Kubrick having this emphatic. Uh, existential, uh, ironic ending that he has on these films. Right, right. Um, I would say it, it, there seems to be a germination of it at the end of Killer's Kiss. You know, I, but I feel like it probably does come to fruition fully in the killing. Um, certainly, certainly, that's there. And then you know, I think after the killing, it's Paths of Glory, right? Um, right. Yeah. Which, uh, which really has a sucker punch of an ending, you know, that, that, uh, is, is in some ways tonally incongruous with it comes before and yet is the absolute perfect ending for everything in that, that that film does. Um, I mean, talk about like a really cold, harsh, brutal film that kind of gets this strange moment of humanity at the end. Um, and you know, just a devastating moment of humanity. I think he does that there. He does it in um, Barry Lyndon. Um, in a sense, I guess you could say it, it happens in a perverted way in Clockwork Orange, in a perverted way in The Shining. In a sense, you know, I mean, and then 
Oh God! I mean, I'm just—I'd go. I, I'm gonna—I'm gonna just ramble here. So you guys should probably just <laughs> what, ask what, questions. But he, but one of the overriding kind of themes and ideas that he was consumed with in several of these films throughout his career is the concept of war, uh, right. as he first examined in Paths of Glory. Uh, right. What do you think is his unique take on on war and our need for conflict? Well, war, war and camaraderie, probably. I mean, whether it be camaraderie within the family unit or camaraderie within, among soldiers or um, among, you know, aristocrats in the, what is it, 17th, 18th century, um, you know, or, or among a married couple, you know, and, and, and then the tensions that arise out of that, you know, and uh, so it's, uh, it's kind of like, if, you know, there's, there's a literal war that he sometimes examines, like uh, with Vietnam and Full Metal Jacket, and uh, you know the World War One and uh, in Paths of Glory, um, but also a war, a war within, you know, a psychological war within within people or or between, uh, you know, he, he it's like he can even elevate, he can elevate the uh, the tension between a married couple and The Shining and then Eyes Wide Shut to the same mythical uh, cosmic level as he does you know the fate of the human race in um, in, um, in in 2001 you know it's like it's it's all it's all of a piece in a way you know mm-hmm. it's like there's not you don't you don't get the sense that when he's looking at a married couple he's not in some way exalting this relationship to, or bringing this relationship to as cosmic and giant a level as he does, you know, the Star Child in 2001. It's it's like it's all massive. It's all big. It's all uh, it, it, it's all um, it's all all consuming. I'd say, um, yeah. and 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 it's uh, and yeah, it's incredible. I think it's uh, yeah. So. Well, with his next movie, which was Spartacus, I mean, he was a replacement director uh, right. for Anthony Mann, who was let go. Uh, right. Do you, what do you see of Kubrick in that film, or do you see Kubrick in that film? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Of course, I had I had I skipped in my mind from Paths of Glory to Lolita, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, it's funny because uh, Spartacus, I mean, in its way, does feel like a work for hire and yet things will peek through like um uh the i think it the it was the deleted scene that was added back in with um uh the 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 oyster discussion between um Olivier and uh, and Tony Curtis uh, Olivier dubbed by Anthony Hopkins um which which in its own way is a strange strange uh, strange thing um almost a almost a weird distancing effect there that Kubrick had nothing to do with really because he just you know I, I think he was uh, or did he have something to do with it was he around for that restoration he or? was around for the restoration but you know Kubrick really doesn't consider he doesn't consider, consider one that of, he doesn't consider right. one of the films i believe the story is Joan Plowright uh uh said uh get Anthony Hopkins Anthony Hopkins Right. Does a good impersonation of Olivier. Yeah, and and yet you know I feel I feel things in that I feel that I feel it in the in the bigness of Lawton's character uh, Lawton's character Charles Lawton um, mm-hmm. and his uh, you know and his sort of stealing supporting role, which I mean Lawton was doing by that point certainly between like witness for the prosecution and then eventually advise and consent and you know I mean 
he became a he became the go to guy go to guy for that, and he was always pretty much always like incredible doing that. Um, you know, I guess I guess I see Kubrick more attracted to um, you know someone someone like Olivier in that film as opposed or Olivier's character as opposed to Crassus is, is he Crassus in that Olivier? Right. Yeah, right. uh, attracted more to Crassus than um, he is to Spartacus. Spartacus is kind of like, I'd say, a rather dull hero type, and you know, it's kind of like after what he does, after what Kubrick does with Kirk Douglas and in Path of Glory, kind of making him, you know, just 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 a bit a bit too much of the idealist in a sense, so that so that he's not entirely the hero. It's like everybody in that movie has some weird kind of flaw to them and everything. And I think there's something a bit more uh, um, flat about Spartacus. Um, you know, compelling perhaps because Douglas is a compelling presence. I mean, God knows he yells and it's kind of like, oh, hello, Kirk. You know, <laughs> it's, just, it's, 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 it's just something you you can't avoid. But um, yeah, I mean, the the for hire kind of thing is is there. And as I as I think, I'm trying to think back on just like the visual schema of Spartacus and everything. And it's really just more like. You know, it, it's a it's a well it's a well done biblical epic. It's of course it it's sort of more. You remember it for all the different personalities who are involved. You remember it for Douglas. You remember it for Dalton Trumbo and the breaking of the blacklist. You remember, uh, you you remember it for some some Kubrickian flourishes here and there, but it's really not a full Kubrick film. You know. Yeah. Uh, I think he probably mind. just just felt like he owed uh, Kirk Douglas, and actually Kirk Douglas kind of. Trapped him into a, into a multi-picture deal with him for agreeing to do Path yeah. of Glory. Yeah. Um, so it was, you know, he, it was something he felt he owed him and couldn't get out of at the same but you time. Can, you can see in Spartacus, I, I would think you might agree with this, Keith, in that some of those battle scenes and, and, and Kubrick is kind of doing almost like a primer on a, you know choreography of big scenes that he right. would really make his own in something like Barry Lyndon. Yeah, I mean, and then of course, what's interesting is that, say for 2001, he moves away from widescreen to a kind of 166 or 133 kind of framing, and yet there's uh, there's, a, there's a bigness to 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 the way he uses those frames. You know, it's, you feel you feel like you know, it's kind of like you. When when you got the first release of Kubrick DVDs and it was like everyone said, you know, well the proper aspect ratio for a lot of these is one three three or something. You know, he makes you feel that, but it's like The Shining can work equally as well in like one three three as it can at one seven eight, which is now the new kind of you know format for these Blu-rays for Kubrick. So it's kind of like he there he was he seemed like since he was such a technophile, he really seemed to be one of the first directors who did the kind of now, I guess, the James Cameron standard, which is to compose for multiple, you know, uh, modes of performance, like Cameron talking about composing Titanic for both 235 and for, you know, a television aspect ratio as well. So it could play, you know, in, in each in each way. So it's like kind of Kubrick was thinking of that too, and yet it, it, it didn't come across as like, 
hastily done. You know, I think like with Cameron, there, there can be a bit of sloppiness, even though he does have a bit of perfection to him, whereas I think Kubrick really had it in his mind. He could think in different frames, and he could make all these things work, you know, in, in some way. And, yeah. and, it, and it's striking, you know, that he can do that. I mean, say for something like 2001, which does, of course, lose stuff, but I think he was really going for broke there in some way. Um, in, in, in a way that, you know, all the films after, which are great, too, I mean, I don't know if they quite touched 2001 in terms of, like, you know, inimitable greatness. That that film is just astonishing, you know, and, and one of the all-time greats, I think, so. Well, with, with Lolita and several of his other films, yeah. uh, like 2001 and Clockwork Orange, I mean, he, he seems to be attempting to to pull off the impossible. I mean, it, it's yeah. they even used it as the tagline for Lolita. You know, uh, how, right. how in the how, how they, in the world? Yeah, how could they possibly how could they make ever this? make a movie of Lolita? <laughs> yeah, the trailer is hilarious with like all these like these prudish voiceovers. But how would they ever make a movie of Lolita? You know, it's like, and 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 now I mean, people say you look at it and it looks tame. Sue Lyon is too old or something like that. But it's still got that movie still has kick to it. I mean, and a lot of it has to do with Mason and and. Shelley Winters, and I would say even Sue Lyon, who's probably one of the one of the one of the more interesting Kubrick blanks. You know, there 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 often is a blank character in Kubrick. Sometimes there's a lead, like uh, you know, um, what's it called, like uh, Ryan O'Neill or in Mary mm-hmm. Linden or uh, or um, come on, Matthew Modine. Uh, uh, Matthew Modine, thank you, in uh, in Full Metal Jacket. Uh, Tom Cruise kind of treads both in a way in Eyes Wide Shut, but we can we can go to that later. Or, or you know, he has really big people in the lead, like Jack Nicholson in The Shining. You know, big performance in that. Or, um, you know, uh, or James. McDowell, or I would say yeah. Yeah, McDowell, obviously in Clockwork Orange, and I would even say James Mason in uh, in Lolita. There's something really primal about James Mason and how he moves from this very urbane, you know, uh, urbane professorial type to this really uh jealous and uh and and out for blood kind of you know character and of course he's perfectly matched in that way with um with Peter Sellers who's incredible in the film as mm-hmm. Quilty you know mm-hmm. just um and and they're all revolving around this this girl who you're kind of looking at and you're like what is you know in a way it's kind of and I guess some people see it as a failure it's like what what do they all see in her and yet it's kind of like I think that's one of the kind of the film's genius in a way is that you know the men you you see you see her through the men rather than see her really and and it's kind of it it is it is this weird effect of you're viewing her through this prism of the men and so then you know it's kind of like you just sort of believe in her beauty in a way but you're seeing it filtered through them and then when she comes out at the end very frumpy with the glasses and everything i mean even that is not entirely convincing it's just kind of like she's a model but she's a model that you 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 believe these men see her as and and then you know they they see her as an ideal and they see her not as an ideal and yet she still comes across as like this doll that is being dressed up it's kind of like the ultimate uh, satirical joke in a way you know on, yeah. on 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 really i guess 
you know, uh, the sex film and the eroticism of the 60s films that was there and stuff. I mean, I guess, you know, Antonioni would be addressing it in, a, in, a, in his own kind of way in, um, in, in his great movies uh, around the time, La Ventura and, uh, and, um, and, and the Cleese and, and other things. You know, that, that whole kind of early to mid-60s period was a, was a haven for that, you know, uh, and, you know, La Dolce Vita and, you know, all these... All, all these films that were kind of breaking the 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 sexual taboos and stuff, and Kubrick is kind of doing that, but having a, a satirical a satirical laugh at it as well. You know, um, Lolita and Doctor Strangelove are really his are his two great early '60s satires. You could say, I guess, 2001 has its satirical elements as well. So, um, well, do you yeah. do you think that people miss that a lot in Kubrick's works, the 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 dark kind of satirist at work? I mean, Strangelove, his next film is the most overtly comic. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, film he's done. But there's there's humor to be found in, in in most of his films. Do you think that that's missing from a lot of people? Yeah, I mean, God, and you know what? I've I've certainly missed it myself. I mean, just to jump ahead slightly, you know, when I first saw Eyes Wide Shut, I thought it was of course fantastic. Except I thought, oh God, why didn't he cut that goddamn pool table scene where Sidney Pollack explains it all and all this and blah blah? And now. I look at that scene and I think that's one of the funniest things in the fucking picture and I'm like, My God, I can't why what an idiot I was to think that this scene needed to be cut. It's so crucial to it. You know, it's like I think Jonathan Rosenbaum said that it basically it, it seems like it's explaining things and yet it it's explaining nothing whatsoever. And and Sydney the way Sidney Pollock is playing it, it's just like you know, the pool table is like this gigantic red thing just sitting there. You know, it's like it's like and it's dwarfing both of them, and and it's just rendering everything hilariously nonsensical in some way. You know, and 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 the way Sidney Pollock is reducing everything to like these aphorisms. You know, life goes on until it doesn't, or you know, let's cut the crap, Bill. Bye. It's, it's, <laughs> you know, I just just, just the, his performance in that is brilliant. I mean, he was a great great actor. You know, like the way yeah. Woody Allen used him in Husbands and Wives, the way he was in that Sopranos episode where uh, Johnny Sack died. I mean, you know, Sidney Pollock is a great, great actor. My God. And and just like the way he plays that scene in Eyes Wide Shut is so funny. It's so funny. And yet it's played so dry and and so, you know, under the radar in a way. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you, know, you it's easy to laugh at and with Buck Turgidson and you know George C. Scott and Doctor Strangelove, or or um, or or you know when when Sterling Hayden just says we, we need to protect our bodily fluids and stuff. I mean, I guess you laugh at the at the bodily fluids things because you know if Kubrick is being blunt, you know people laugh people laugh at it. I mean, and I guess it's easy to laugh too at uh, you know when when Nicholson keeps repeating like give me the bat, give me the bat, give me the bat. Of course, that's mixed up with like you know. Its own really bizarre sense of horror, you know. So, so you're feeling, you're feeling a lot of things in The Shining, not just humor. I guess maybe, maybe that, maybe that's the thing. You know, Strange Love is so broadly played and correctly so, I think, um, that you know, it's kind of like the horror is is slightly tempered. It's still there and it's underneath it. And of course, you get to the the bombs at the end, and I think then it probably comes back at that point. But I think a lot of what maybe a lot of the reason people don't find the humor in Kubrick is that it's there on a level with 
everything else that's going on in there with horror with with awe with um you know uh god i don't even know what other feelings to really say you know just it's it's there's a, there's a lot of things going on in each frame of his films um i would and then i would say like with something like clockwork orange maybe the the humor is played uh a bit too emphatically with the horror at least in my most recent viewing albeit i know a lot of people still do see it as a as a very prime uh satire of his um but you know maybe we can get to that when we get to the film so yeah. do you feel that Whenever we talk about Kubrick, we talk about the major canon, obviously, and it starts with yeah. 2001. Right. Do you feel that something happened with him and his confidence as a filmmaker with that project? Did he find his his final kind of artist voice with that, or did that happen before with Strangelove, do you think? Well... If we were to look at 2001, and, uh, and let me look at this in, in, in a way, comparing him to um, my other uh, favorite artist of all time, Tarkovsky. Because I, I would say that Kubrick and Tarkovsky occupy a place for me at this point in my life of being the supreme touchstone artist for me. Never mind if, you know, if we're talking canonical all time. I mean, I don't really like to think of things like that. I'm talking I when I talk about films, when I address films from criticism, I really do talk from a very personal perspective first and foremost. You know, people can take my opinions as, you know, take it or leave it. I mean, I guess there is a canon to talk about Kubrick where he fits in in that or whatever, Tarkovsky whatever, you know. I mean, I I'm not so much interested in trying to create an unassailable canon as I am trying to say these are the artists who really affected me the most. When I saw Kubrick and when I saw uh when I saw Tarkovsky's movies, it was kind of like those were the ones that made me feel the 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 quote that Scorsese uses at the end of Raging Ball. I was blind and now I can see. Those are the ones who you know who I who who made me who made me feel like I could see most clearly. You know, and so to, to use that comparison, I would say 2001 probably occupies a place in Kubrick's filmography that the mirror occupies in Tarkovsky's filmography. It seems to me to be a crux around which all the other ones turn. It's the central work. Uh, mm -hmm. it, it, is, it is the film that is perhaps the most opaque, uh, the hardest to understand, in a lot of ways the most mind-fucky, um, to coin the phrase. Uh, and uh, and I feel like that's just the one that you know if you were to 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 to, to poke something at, at the center to find to find that the, the center of something that that is the film you know in Kubrick's filmography that is very much the one uh, around which all the others revolve that all they all grow to and grow out of um, and uh, yeah so. and all of his films are so different. I mean, it, 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 and you know, they transcend the the restrictions of each genre, quote unquote genre that he's working in. Uh, how, yeah. how do you how do you think two thousand one advances the science fiction genre, which obviously it it is a part of, right? The giant uh, of that genre. I mean, it's one of the giants of that genre. I, I don't want to say it's. I don't want to necessarily say it's the giant. And I would I would also say though I would add to this that Hubert transcends himself each time. You know, it's like and I would say there 
there are very there are very few artists who this is true of. I'd say Malik is probably another. Um, where you might go in expecting something, but you really there are artists who you just say, um, and I definitely think Kubrick is one of these, who when you're having your first experience with them, you may go in thinking you know what to expect, but you need to really grapple with it uh, or grapple with each new work before you can even, I think, come to some kind of understanding. You know, and Kubrick is just one of those who uh, I feel is uh, is that kind of artist. I mean, you know, I, I go into Eyes Wide Shut in 99 for the first time, the only Kubrick film that I was able to see in first run in the theater because um, I was too young to see um, Full Metal Jacket or The Shining at the time they came out, even though I was alive at the time. Um, and, uh, you know, I had an idea of what to expect, and I thought I grasped it, uh, certainly in a way, and I kind of wrote a review that was really, like, emphatically positive for it. And like I say, you know, revisiting it now, I mean, the movie has deepened in in my estimation. I mean, I think Eyes Wide Shut is one of his greatest films. Um, and, um, but of course... This is just this is just to say that each new exper- each new encounter with Kubrick brings something new to the table, which is why I'm even eager to revisit you know Clockwork Orange. I mean, but back to your question about 2001, uh, which would be could you just repeat again what? Well, I was talking about how how it uh, how broke it, through the constrictions of that genre. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's a kind of movie that you look at. Um, its effects don't seem dated to me at all. I mean, even you know, it, it's like even though I look at them, and in some ways I can see, yes, okay, the pen is on a string and a semi-invisible string, and on Blu-ray you can sort of see the string a bit more. Or oh, now I see that the you know the shadows aren't quite moving as much on the on on the on the spaceship you know as it's moving above the earth as as bef- as, as I thought before or something but or, or or whatever i mean even with that even with the the dated aspects of it the effects don't seem dated to me i mean you know like when the woman walks upside down for an example it's mind blowing i i still I, I know there's like there's like a turning of something happening somewhere, you know, that I think De Palma might have made use of somewhat in Mission to Mars, you know, mm-hmm. to, to also astonishing effect. I think I mean, Kubrick got there first in a way, and it's still striking. Um, and I guess just you know goes to show. I mean, it's not there's it's something more than just. It's not not just about tangibility of effects because I think you could probably attain this with digital too. You know, it's just like it's it's about more the 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 the, the mind and and the collaboration and and the, the things behind the effects, the people doing it. You know, it can be as false looking as you want it to be, but if there is some kind of real there's some intangibility behind the effects that it's not it's not just about, you know, oh it was done organically. You know, it's there's something more to it, especially in that film. It, it's basically it's basically a film where I don't think the effects can ever date because there's 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 some kind of other intangible presence behind all of them. Um, you know, in the way Kubrick collaborated, what he was aiming for and what the movie ultimately achieves. Um, is is just something that is out of time, 
you know, uh, that that's the thing. It's a movie that's out of time, and I don't know how you uh, how you accomplish that except to have some kind of faith, some kind of belief, some kind of you know uh, absolute innate artistry um, that is indefinable. You know, and it's uh, in that case, it really wouldn't matter. I think if Kubrick like made 2001 today and had that similar you know thing, but used digital effects, I feel like he could probably come up with something you know, absolutely astonishing, um, even with that, and, and also perhaps not dated. You know, and, and I guess some people now might say, like the way David Fincher uses effects and, and, and kind of, in, you know, uses them seamlessly. It'll be interesting to see or, you know, how his effects work kind of moves over time in, in consonance with what his films are saying. I mean, you know, I have my own thoughts on that, but that's a different podcast. So, you know, <laughs> I, I mean... I mean, I mean, as far as as far as, and I'd say I'm more mixed on Fincher. But anyway, you know, uh, it's more like with Kubrick. You know, it's kind of like if you if you are with Kubrick all the way, I guess, then as I am, uh, then then you see, uh, then really, whatever you know, you feel like he could use any kind of effects work and you know achieve something sublime. Um, and 2001 just does that. And I mean, you know, the way the just what it does with. Uh, with how it creates uh, space travel, how it uses silence, how it how it moves from prehistoric to future times, just with this, you know, and makes use of you know traditional editing and 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 effects work that you know I think just looks you know above and beyond anything. You know, it, it's kind of like when. When I saw this, the documentary on Scott Walker and Brian Eno was talking about how he was listening to one of the Scott Walker tracks and 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 he was like, oh God, nobody's nobody's advanced past this. It's kind of like that's what I feel about 2001. Uh, you know, I guess at my lowest moments is that uh, God, nobody's advanced past this. And I mean, in some degree, that's you know, that's kind of like nostalgic bullshit, perhaps. But I, I, I just feel like you know, if you're talking passionately about something that. 2001 is a milestone in so many ways. You know, it does feel like that's a movie that nobody can really advance past. And I know that if I said that to Andrew Saras or Pauline Kael, they would probably slap me upside the head and say I was a young whippersnapper and I didn't know jack shit. But, you know, I mean, that's, you know, that's the movies for you. You know, there are things that, that I think are visionary that people think are crap. Yeah, when when you when you see 2001 and and take into account his other <clears throat> works as well, yeah. what do you think his view of of humanity was? I mean, do do you think he was pessimistic or optimistic about the the goodness in, 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 he, of man? He saw a lot of things in humanity. I mean, look, you know, 2001 is about the evolution of the human race. So what I think he sees in that is that the human race will be perpetuated in some way. It will evolve beyond the machines that it creates to, that attempt to destroy it. You know, in, the, in that sense, I feel like it's a very hopeful film. At the same time, when he's involved in the mock of humanity as it is, he sees a lot of different things. So you know, he sees the humanity, say, uh, in, um, in 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 uh, Gomer Pyle. In, in Full Metal Jacket, and he watches as it's leached out of him. 
similarly with Private Joker, you know, and then sees the the humanity in the in the other, the the Vietnamese woman, or the way he sees the humanity in the uh, in the woman who's just lost her husband in Eyes Wide Shut, who Tom Cruise goes to see, and you know she cries over her husband's body while also hitting on Tom Cruise. He he sees that that's a muck of humanity right there. You know, it's kind of like you. I I think you believe, and that role I think was originally played by Jennifer Jason Leigh, and then was reshot with that British actress whose whose name I, I forgot. Marie I Richardson, I think. Marie Rich. Oh yes, Marie Richardson, who's brilliant, brilliant in that role too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would have loved to see what Jennifer Jason Leigh did with it, but you know, I mean, Marie Richardson is wonderful in the way she. You believe she's mourning her husband at the same time that she is also lusting after Tom Cruise. And that's the kind of thing where it's kind of like you feel the tragedy of this woman's loss at the same time that you're laughing at the fact that Tom Cruise is getting hit on every which way and yet he doesn't he doesn't stray. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? He wants to stray, but it's like he can't stray. Ooh, I want to stray with the prostitute, but damn, she has AIDS. Or, you know, I, I, you know this woman is hitting on me, but she's, she's friends with her. Why are all these people hitting on me? Why, why are these why are these jocks calling me a faggot? You know, it's kind of like he walks to that movie so clueless. That's kind of like the humorous aspect of it. You know, it, it's it, one of my friends, Jeremiah Kipp, I think, talks about it as, you know, the movie in which Tom Cruise walks around and never gets laid. <laughs> which, you know, yeah, is like yeah. the, the ultimate critique on, on you know, the Hollywood, uh, on the Hollywood virility, I suppose, of which Tom Cruise represented a certain kind that, of course, now you're getting further away from it and you're looking back and seeing the blatant homoeroticism of Top Gun and kind of like, in kind of like a retrospective light and you're just kind of like, my God, this... This guy has no. This guy is like such a boy, you know, or or such a or such a such a such a pitiful representation of masculinity, and yet he was sold as that in some way at a certain point that you saw that at the time that the films were released, and now it seems so comical. And I think Kubrick is kind of playing on that, you know, um, and and I mean, you know, especially now you see him in like that god awful Cameron Diaz film Night and Day where he's trying to be, you know, sexy and it just is not coming off in any way, shape, or form and it's kind of like, you know, Eyes Wide Shut seems all the more interesting because of that. You know, yeah. in, in terms of how it's playing with his iconography. I mean you know, so I mean you you know, Kubrick was playing on iconography all through his career with like with Mason and in Lolita with with um Malcolm McDowell at, at the time of course of Clockwork Orange being in like the Lindsay Anderson films and being the British angry young man playing on that ang- iconography, playing on Jack Nicholson's, you know, uh presence and, and how he could push that into ever more psychotic realms. Um Well it's interesting I mean, that the the shining, you know, nineteen eighty, it it's almost like the it's Jack Nicholson's final performance from the seventies. Yeah, and, and and it and it explodes it. It yeah. explodes everything, you know, that he did and, and and I mean, you know, after that it's not like Jack is still probably one of the few uh actors out there who's capable of giving, you know, a, a really interesting performance. I mean, although I'm hearing De Niro in Stone is quite interesting, but I think De Niro's kind of been on autopilot for a long time, but he's like one of those 70s staples that Nicholson is one of those 70s staples who I think has managed to do interesting work all through his career, even if he's, you know, in a in a fucking Nancy Myers movie. So, yeah, you know, <laughs> he he really is the perfect 
collaborator for Kubrick because Kubrick was famous as saying by by saying that he wasn't as as consumed with achieving naturalism as he was with getting something interesting. And yeah. Nicholson strikes me as the kind of actor where if given that freedom from a director, uh he's the most interesting actor there. <laughs> there sure, sure, sure. And McDowell uh in in the in uh in, in Clockwork Orange, I mean big performances like I'm saying, but also, you know, Kubrick knew how to uh, use people as if they were mannequins, which is why you know using Ryan O'Neill and Barry Lyndon is, is is such an interesting effect there, and the way he um, just I think he he's perfect for Redmond Barry in, in the sense that he never really seems to evolve at all. You know, it's just he's he's a mannequin, and 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 and, and the emotion happens around him. You know, he's like he's 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 the crux to this story that ends in this great moment of tragedy where, you know, basically um, and, and I mean, I, I will say actually, of course, I am thinking back on, I think I think when when uh, Ryan O'Neill when, when Barry loses his young son in Barry London, the, the only boy he really cares about, you know, who's not, you know, who's not Lord Bullingdon you know, he hates Lord Bullingdon and everything and they have that whole rivalry and Lord Bullingdon essentially becomes Barry you know, in, in all his coldness by the end, aloofness at first, you know, and then to coldness is kind of, I guess, his, you know, arc or whatever, albeit he's just still sort of the same blank at the end as he was at the beginning, except for those moments where he loses the one thing he cares about and he kind of breaks. It's always interesting when the Kubrick mannequin breaks, you know, um, and becomes and becomes for a brief moment an emotional being and then kind of puts the mask back on. And yet, you know, the mask is 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 cloaking this damaged this damaged raw nerve underneath it. Um that's that's one of the amazing things about it is when feeling erupts in a Kubrick film and you never quite know where it's gonna come. Sometimes it's at the end, sometimes it's in the middle, sometimes it's at various points throughout. Um you know, the coldness with which Nicole Kidman says the final line of Eyes Wide Shut is just fascinating to me. Um and I just and then her after you know, her after morning face, you know, after he's confessed to her. You don't hear the confession but you see her destroyed face with like the cigarette dangling from her fingers and everything. I mean, Kubrick knows how to get his effects. Um and damned. I mean he does it most of the time for me. So And you know and you know she's been crying all night. Oh god. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And she probably had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he <laughs> probably pushed it. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if he filmed her on crying jags. You know, and then finally Nicole Kidman probably sees the film cut together and just sees that all he puts in the film is like her after effects. He's just like, You motherfucker she I would imagine her saying or something. Well at the same time probably having a deep affection for him. Because I think that you know, that probably you know, I mean McDowell talks about this. Too, in, mm-hmm. in working with Kubrick and like how they struck up such a great friendship on the set of the movie and yet when it was over it was kind of like it all went away it was like Kubrick had manipula- had a manipulative side to him but he understood I think he understood people and, and how and how relationships are always subject to mutation. And maybe that's why 2001 is the greatest is his greatest film to me is because that is a film about the human species mutating. You know, 
from ape to man to something else. You know, and so it's cosmic. And all of Kubrick's films feel cosmic to me, but most of the others are, you know, involved within a very set uh, time period and muck of humanity. Mm-hmm. 2001 is more is much more all-encompassing from the muck to something undefinable that, that we have not yet even achieved yet and yet done in the blink of an eye. You know, it's kind of like that movie is two blinks of an eye. From from ape to man, blink. From man to star child, blink. And it's like two blinks of an eye given you over two and a half hours, and it's it's awe-inspiring, absolutely awe-inspiring. I have a question, Uh, Keith, and and the thing I'm curious about, if you have an opinion or an idea, thought about this, and that, you know, there's a lot of, in some critical circles and even some cinephile circles, there's a lot put on the emphasis of, writer directors in that you know directors yeah. also write their own material and you know they take Absolutely. five six years between projects and you know somehow that that gives it more weight if you will or whatever more importance and that yeah. kubrick while he did do you know have these long intervals between between films and but he wasn't shy about taking pre-existing material and using it as a as a springboard and you know be it, you know, the, obviously The Shining is kind of the most, I guess you could say, known of this because he's taking a Stephen King yeah. horror gothic potboiler, you know, and, you know, he trans, he transforms it into something, and, of course, the author doesn't like it and so forth. But I'm curious yeah. what, if you have any, if you have any uh, thoughts on the fact that Kubrick was one of these directors who, you know, we all admire and put in this, uh, you know, we put into, the, you know, the, the hierarchy, one of the greats, but that he wasn't one of, you know, he didn't he didn't mind being inspired by other material and transforming it into his own. Well, and 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 also I would say collaborating. And I mean, this gets into something that I've been you know thinking lately. You know, my Twitter feed tends to be my, my screening log, and one of the things I do is I just sort of I note down the title of the film and the year as the identifier, and I don't note down director or anything like that. And that's kind of a conscious choice on my part because I'm trying to move away from an explicitly auteurist way of looking at film. I mean, here we're we're talking about Kubrick, so it's kind of like it, it's expected in this podcast that we're talking about you know his films kind of from that perspective primarily. But certainly, I think, he, and and certainly in his case, I think you could. Uh, I think he's ripe for auteurist study, and probably with his movies, it's the most interesting way to approach things. Um, albeit, he had numerous collaborators that you could also, and probably should also discuss. You know, Douglas Trumbull doing the effects for 2001. That is, he, that is the guy's name, right? right. Yes, yeah, that, that is that is his name. Yeah, I've, I, had, I, I've I, had I've had problems with him, so. Yeah, yeah. I, I've I, I just wanted uh, I just wanted to be sure my mind isn't playing tricks on me because sometimes I've gotten names wrong. But yeah, Douglas Trumbull with 2001. You know, uh, Kirk Douglas, and you could in in his in his two films, Sterling Hayden, and the two films he worked. The way Lolita, I think, actually, you know, the way Spart- let's say you know Spartacus is like 
film where it's kind of like you, you kind of have to go through all the other different collaborators and say, well, because Kubrick is not as very as, as much of it, you know uh, uh, as obvious in that film, you know, and so you kind of go through all the collaborators and look at that. Whereas in Lolita, I think it's very much a Kubrick film, but it also lends itself a lot to the collaborator kind of criticism. I think it would be very difficult to write about um, 2001, say, through the prism of Kier Delay, uh, who, as a lot of people have said, is Kier Delay gone tomorrow. Um, <laughs> a rather, yeah, uh, a rather, a rather, a rather, a rather, a rather a blank, along with Gary Lockwood, um, who, um, you know, uh, Gary Lockwood starred in this Jacques Demy film, Model Shop, that was originally earmarked for Harrison Ford. And if you picture young Harrison Ford in in uh, Model Shop, uh, you kind of see where the flaws come out, you know, because Gary Lockwood mm-hmm. and Gary Lockwood and Kier Delight, not very interesting people. Perfectly cast in 2001, I think, not, you know, a particularly interesting level of study if you're going to write about that film from that perspective. You know, it's kind of like, yeah, they're blank. And that's yeah, right yeah. for the movie. You know, it's kind of like that. But whereas you can probably write reams about Sellers in, in, in his Kubrick films and, and what he does in that. You could write reams about Douglas Trumbull. You could probably write reams about Scatman Crothers and how and how crazy nuts Kubrick treated him and, and what that means to the film and you know and the and, and the and the idea of, of blackness and in 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 the in, in The Shining. You know, like when you see Scatman Crothers in that room with all the Af- with the naked Afro women paintings around him. It's kind of like, what does this mean? I'm still not sure what it means. If it's if, there, if there's like some critique of racism going on here, is it playing on some kind of idea of blackness and the black mystic, you know, or, or whatever, or, or or the holy or the holy black man, you know, in 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 there? And of course, then the ultimate cruelty. I mean, I, I honestly, the death that you I think you feel most in The Shining is Scatman Crothers' death, which mm-hmm. which really makes it interesting, you know, too, in terms of like a, a race reading of the film, because that's, that, you know, it's kind of like, here's a man who's in a role that you kind of, I think, would be conditioned to believe is the, uh, the, the holy, the, the heavenly Negro who will come and save, you know, the, 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 the white boy with the powers and everything. And yet then, and I think, I think it's actually a difference from the, the book. I think, uh, Dick Halloran survives in the book, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yeah. Uh, but, no, Kubrick has him like, you know, he comes and he's like, hello, anybody here, hello? And it goes on agonizingly to the point that it's ridiculous at a certain at a certain point. And then Nicholson just jumps out with the ass <laughs> like, takes him down. Stephen King had, and, an, uh, had an affinity uh, for, you know, heavenly Negroes. Yeah, exactly. And it's kind of like, and it's kind of like that might be the moment when Dick Halloran becomes effectively human, and you feel it. You know, so you yeah. can write a whole race commentary on The Shining and what it's doing, and there's pro, and you could probably find problematic aspects. I mean, if you got someone like Bell Hooks to kind of, you know, exercise that side of it, I'm sure you'd come up with some some really interesting insights into that. You know, it just just in terms of you know what it means. Is there a racist element to it, or is there something that, that that's making it, you know, more human here? Um, well, I, I I was I, thinking maybe you would agree, Keith, that particularly. Yeah. Obviously, we're digressing here, but we'll get back on track real quick. And that yeah. that The Shining, it, it's okay if a movie is has racism in it as long as it, it acknowledges that. And that I think 
because obviously, you know, Mr. Brady is a racist. Oh yeah. He, he, oh God. Oh, and yeah. when he when he's saying there's a nigga in the in the house, and it's kind of like, I mean, please please forgive me for you know even speaking the term, but I mean, the thing is that Kubrick puts the term in there, and it is extremely unsettling. And if you imagine that this is all kind of like, in some sense, Jack Jack Torrance's subconscious, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, it's you know it's like it is addressing something within him, something unspoken within him that, that, that the Grady is now, you know, you know, coming out the, the previous caretaker, even though he's saying, well, Mr. Torrance, you've always been the caretaker. So then have you always been me? You know, it's kind of like there's this, there's this line of thinking that's being teased out of there um, that I don't think is really present in the King novel, which I actually think is rather bad. Um, and uh, which I also think was made into a rather atrocious miniseries um, uh, that uh, Mick Garris directed, you know, when, and King, of course, put his imprimatur on because, you know, Kubrick ruined my book. No, he made it better, Stephen, but you can't really see that because I think everything you adapt for the pictures is kind of sucky. <laughs> <laughs> As, know, as, Stephen it, King, it, as Stephen King once said, you know, if you want it done right, you have to do it yourself, a la Maximum Overdrive. Yeah. Um, right. And he did so, do it himself. I mean, he submitted a screenplay to Kubrick. But yeah. And, in, uh, in, ter- in terms of The Shining, um, do, you, do you think it's a movie of, about the supernatural, or do, you, or do you think that it's his subconscious? It is all that and more. And that's why, and that's why it's great, because uh, it unsettles you to the point that you don't know quite where these specters are coming from. You know, again, it's like uh, the effect, the way he does the ghosts. You know, it's kind of like they just they just appear and they're there. You know, it's 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 kind of like they 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 don't like materialize with effects with obvious effects and you know Kubrick might have even been able to, you know like if you look at the miniseries of The Shining it's kind of like you know you have Danny's little Danny's Danny's uh, um, talk you know the way he's like Tony Danny Danny's uh, spirit guide Tony you know in the miniseries is like this floating older version of, of Danny um, of Danny himself in glasses. And, you know, you don't find that out to the end, that it's his older, the older version of himself talking to the younger version of himself, but it looks cheesy on screen. There might be a way of, doing, of, of having a floating four-eyed spirit guide somewhere where it didn't look cheesy on screen, but Mick Garris is not the one to visualize that because he can't visualize anything that's, that's particularly deep. Um, you know, though he has done, you know, the first act of The Stand is, is actually pretty effective. But, you know, I mean, it's like, I just kind of feel like with all his work, it's kind of like he stumbled over that and somehow he managed to not fuck something up. Um, but, uh, you know, the way Kubrick does it, it's just like Danny's, is, is, uh, is Danny's finger just moving and him doing that little voice, now, you know, it's like that's how a child would kind of talk and that's maybe how a ghost, I believe a ghost would come, you know, to, to, to him in that way. It's like, and it makes sense in that particular world and then the way Jack, Torrance's ghosts come to him. It's just like they're there and they're corporeal and they feel real and they can open doors. You know, I mean, how does Jack get out of the the right. you know the, the right. refrigerator? It's like Grady lets him out, but how? Or is he thinking Grady is? Let, you don't know. 
You just hear Grady on the other side, and somehow the door is open. And, and it yeah. makes sense in this context that the door is open. And I would just say as another example, you know, not to poo-poo like digital effects or something. It's like, you know, I'm a big fan of, of Pro- Alex Proyas's film Dark City, which has a lot of digital effects. And it's just like the way Roger Ebert talks about that film on the commentary track, you know, when he's talking about what the mind ray that is emanating from uh, Rufus Sewell's head, he's like, you know, this is what I picture a mind ray would be like. And I agree with Ebert in this case because in the context of this world, that effect makes sense. You know, it's just like for whatever reason, that effect looks right to me. So it's it's kind of a matter of does this effect look right? You know, in a way, and so the way Kubrick does it is just very, you know, low um, low tech, which is just you know lighting cues and um, you know and and having good actors doing the right thing. So the guy who plays uh, Grady, you know, is very unsettling because he's you know he starts out very polite and then he starts spouting racist rhetoric, and it's like, and you feel like it's connected to Jack Torrance in a way. And then, like, even that weird shot, which I still don't know what to make of, it's so unsettling, uh, the guy in the dog costume giving the blowjob to the, to, the, to, to the other guy in the room. It's like, what the fuck is that? I still don't know what <laughs> yeah. that is. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's, it's, it's just like, and, why, and, and Wendy's seeing it, and it's kind of like, and as I think about it now, okay, if you take it as, like, Jack's conscious, it's this weird sexual fantasy that makes absolutely no sense, really, uh, because a lot of times, you know, sexual fantasies don't make sense. They kind of skip a beat like you're, you know, it's like a record player skipping. You know, it's just so you like, you know, you think of a blowjob or you think of someone eating someone out or, you know, or fucking someone, you know, and you just see it at all these odd angles that probably don't make sense. And and it's kind of like, but if you imagine it as kind of like a wife stumbling upon her husband's dirty laundry, you know, in a sense, his sexual fantasy all of a sudden, then it, then it, then there is a sense, a sense to it. So it's kind of like the Overlook Hotel is absorbing Jack and absorbing his subconscious, as of course, and and that's the the key to the the final image of the movie. I think is that the hotel absorbs him because it is where he belongs, because he's always been the caretaker. He is, you know, it's like. He goes to the hotel and he goes crazy, but in going crazy, he discovers the place he was always meant to be. So, you know, this is another way in which that move, another level on which that movie is working. It's not that there's a boiler waiting underneath there, ready to explode and everything, and it's about fatherhood and my fucking cocaine habit, Stephen King. All right, fine, whatever. You know, it's like Kubrick makes it into something more like a call home. You know, an evolution. It's another evolutionary step. And the evolutionary step for Jack Torrance is to go back home to where he belongs. And But in doing that, he goes absolutely bonkers. You know, in doing that. And, and that, and I mean, and that's not even the only level that movie is working on. I mean, that is a movie I've watched a lot. And that is, you want to talk about a staple of the horror genre. I mean, I, I, would, I would not even necessarily entirely say it, it's only a horror film. You know, it's like, I wouldn't even say 2001 is entirely a science fiction film. It's kind of like you don't want to use genre to mm-hmm, mm-hmm. pin Kubrick down. You know, it's kind of like he, maybe he starts from there, but there's so much more going on, you know, but in in The Shining and, and, and 2001 than you, just you, their you genre, genre pictures. 
you, you bring up genre, and that that leads me to uh, one question I had, Keith. And that's yeah. Particularly, you know, Kubrick only made two films in the 80s, Shining and Full Metal Jacket. Right, right. And these are probably, you know, obviously critic-wise and, and you know, Kubrick file-wise, you know, obviously 2001 and Clockwork Orange are in high estimation, and, and you know, they're milestones and so forth. But when it comes to the films of his that you could say are the most uh, commercially, I guess, accepted, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, put it in a crude way, and the ones that get the most play on, you know, HBO, whatever, or Encore, whatever, it does mm-hmm. seem that Shining and Fullmetal Jackets seem to be the ones that kind of break through that, in that Kubrick is playing in a genre, be it the horror, gothic house genre, or the war right. film, or the war, the war film, uh, or the particularly the Vietnam War film of the, right. of the late 80s, and he yeah. really seems to... I almost think maybe, and you can disagree with this, is that he kind of embraces that and says, you know, I like this, but I, I want to do my version of it. And his version becomes kind of a, you know, a mile marker. In that yeah, I mean, I mean, the thing is that, of course, King Stephen King was big at the time, and so there's that. And then, of course, the Full Metal Jacket comes around the time of, you know, Oliver Stone's Platoon and uh, a lot of these other Vietnam War films that were, you know, that was like the genre. Now now it seems like the Rwandan war film is, is, is or the Rwandan genocide film is, 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 an, is a new subgenre that's being made now. You know, so, I mean, there's always going to be some kind of atrocity that uh, I'm sure we can turn back on. Probably, you know, we're going to get maybe some more 9-11 movies and, and, and uh, Afghanistan movies and Iraq movies coming out at some point, you know. Um, but, uh, I mean, yeah, as far as saying, like, the ones that get play, I mean, I can understand certainly with The Shining, um, with with its Stephen King pedigree, and people see it as a horror film, and of course it is that, and it certainly works on that level. Um, and maybe with Full Metal Jacket, I mean... That gets a lot of play. You know what I wouldn't be surprised, though? I wouldn't be surprised if people tune in just so they can see Arlie Ermey shout all those curses, see Private Gomer Pyle go nuts, and then shut it off after he yeah. kills himself. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if that... I mean, I, th- I, would, I would think that maybe people watch The Shining all the way through, or maybe, or maybe they pop in, you know... Uh, I, I mean, actually, no. I would say probably they would watch The Shining all the way through, even with its slowness and its long course. I could see people doing that. But I wouldn't be surprised if it was Full Metal Jacket. A lot of people just tune in, watch Arlie Army spout off, watch Gomer Pyle shoot himself, and then when they go to Vietnam, they turn it off. Because that's that's a very divisive movie. It's a movie that is itself divided. Um, yes. You know, and uh, I think that the second part is is as wonderful as the first um, in its own way. Albeit, I don't think I'd hold up Full Metal Jacket as in my own Cooper canon as one of the uh, all-time greats. But I still think the 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 contemplativeness of the second part is so crucial to the first part and everyone who says that the first part you know is like um what fuller said you know when he watched it with rosenbaum that it's a goddamn recruiting film or something like that i mean you know i think he was reacting mainly to the first part the first part maybe plays like that kind of recruiting film but again if you look at kubrick's filmography i mean a lot of it is about he might start with the um, the conventions, but by the end, 
he has addressed those conventions and reworked them to his own ends. And I do, I do believe that Rosenbaum uh, wrote about that Fuller experience. Of course, the thing that's always been quoted is Fuller saying it's a goddamn recruiting film. But I think one thing that people tend to leave out is that he also remarked on how Kubrick filmed the Vietnamese woman at the end after he'd been shot. He said he'd never seen um, an emotional effect like that, you know, that, that humanized the Viet Cong in a way that he had not seen before. And that is not quoted as much in that kind of anecdote recollection. It's always about Fuller saying it was a goddamn recruiting film, not him saying, oh, there was, but that humanism, the way he brought the humanism to the Viet Cong woman, uh, you know, was really striking. So that's and if it's a recruiting film, uh, it's pretty much the worst recruiting film I've ever seen <laughs> based on that yeah. first section because, I mean, they they destroy him. I mean, it, it, it said that their goal in the armed yeah. forces is to make a killer, and that's what they do to, well, yeah, to that's, D'Onofrio's that's, character. That's what they do, but I think it is easy um, to uh, fall in love with Arlie Ermey's character. Mm-hmm. You know, just to fall in love with him and to side with him. I don't know if this is necessarily a flaw of the film. Uh, I think this is something that I'd probably waffle on, depending on when I viewed it, what circumstances I viewed it on. But I think it is very—I think he is a very attractive figure in a way, in a way that kind of like someone like Hannibal Lecter is um, in *Silence of the Lambs*. Um, albeit, you know, I mean, I. I'm engaged in a perpetual argument with people about Silence of the Lambs. I think it's a, I think it's a stunning film and and a much gay friendlier work of art than Philadelphia, you know, which I think is a more homophobic film, which gets me in a lot of trouble with, you know, people because it's, it's, it's I think they see it as kind of a weird reading. But it's just like you know that's, it's kind of like I think the attractiveness of Lecter is kind of key to it. Probably the attractiveness of the Ermi character is kind of key to it too. And you know, you know he is seductive in a way the way the way he curses out everybody i think mm-hmm. if you watch the film in toto kubrick is not sanctioning that viewpoint and saying you know join up join up you know it, it, but it's like i think people it's kind of like when, when you go to the movies uh it's easiest i hold myself in this to want to identify with who seems to be the strongest character on screen Mm-hmm. And, and and to love that person because people want to be strong. You know, we we want to see ourselves as strong and in control. And Arlie Ermey is in control in that film. I would even say, in a way, you could read it in a very fucked up sense that he's in control of his own death. You know, <laughs> it, it's kind yeah. of like it, you, 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 I, I don't I don't necessarily agree with that reading myself, but I could see you making the argument that, you know, why well, private pile, private pile, you're going to do da, 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 you know, I mean, basically he succeeds in his stated aim, as you say, which is to make a killer. So therefore, what is the ultimate outcome? What is the ultimate, um, what, what is the ultimate way to prove that his method works is to have pile kill the trainer. You know, it makes sense. In right, a way. That, right, that, right. That, that is the ultimate expression of the killing machine. That I have made, I have made the perfect killing machine. That he will even kill the man who, who, who made him that way. Because that is the that that is the ultimate killing machine. And maybe the ultimate killing machine then also kills himself. It's like it's a really fucked up way 
of, of doing it, but it's kind of like you can romanticize that angle of it. And then the fact, though, that those two characters are not in the second half, they don't even really haunt the second half, you know, necessarily. I mean, they're just—I mean, they're there, I guess, in a way. But you know, it's kind of like it's more—it's more like now you're just in an empty shell of a movie. Um, and but that's key to its effects. Well, it's and what like Kubrick doesn't—what Kubrick does in a film, and what is amazing—and I think it's one of the greatest uses of music—is right after Gomer Pilot shot himself, and the yeah. audience has just kind of been pinned to the wall with this carnage. Uh, Cooper cuts to this almost romantic view of a Vietnam, Vietnam street scene with Nancy Sinatra's "These Boots Are Made for Walking." Made for walking. Yeah, and he yeah. makes he makes it seem like the most fun place you'd want to go to. Uh, yeah, and and yet you've just seen one of the most horrible acts of and, violence that, that said, I think I've ever seen on film. I mean, when Gomer Pyle shoots himself, I remember seeing that when I was young, and I was like. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's just that's, it. That's and and this this goes God. to this goes to yeah. what you were saying about uh re- responding affectionately to Arlie Ermey in the film. Kubrick yeah. uh like I said does not program the audience how to feel. I mean, uh, look, listening to the commentary it elucidated for me that there's not a reaction shot in Full Metal Jacket until a half an hour into it. Uh, right. and and he embraces the duality of man. You know, Alex in Clockwork Orange is a vicious killer, but he has this uh, this this uh, love for for life. He lives yeah. to the fullest. He loves Beethoven. Uh, you yeah. know, he's he's cultured in a way. Uh, Matthew yeah, Modine. Yeah, Matthew Mo- <laughs> Matthew Mo- yeah, Matthew Modine, uh when I talked to him he said that scene where um, D'Onofrio kills Arlie Ermey and then himself, um any lesser film the audience would applaud because this is the hard ass that's finally gotten what he deserves. In this film it was shock. It was a theater full of gasps. Yeah. I mean, you know, I could see people maybe applauding when he shoots Arlie Ermey, but then when he shoots himself, I don't think that's shot in any way where you can applaud. Like, I think it's impossible to applaud that. I mean, it's so it's so interesting because you know when he shoots early army he goes down in slow mo, but when he shoots himself, it's quick, and it's yeah. just like you know, it's like he sits down on the toilet. It's from the side, as I recall. He sits down on the toilet, you know, puts the gun down, lifts it really in a it kind of it kind of looks ridiculous in a way as if he's like lifting a giant you know dildo, pardon me or something. You know, it's just it's 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 ridiculous, you know, and then. I think I think it's just like you, you, it's Matthew Modine says no, then it cuts to a frontal shot where it's like there's a split second and then bam, you know, and it's just like you know the wall gets covered immediately and but the gun drops awkwardly, you know if you if you want to talk about it like it's an orgasmic shot or something I mean it's like it's it's like the orgasm lasts a millisecond and then it and then it's just like everything goes limp. Yeah, like there's no, there's no. It's like there's nothing. It's deadening. It's just, it's a, it's a slap in the face. It is a big, big slap, and and just yeah. I mean, I, I and and then and it's like and then it's over, and like you say, yeah. it immediately goes into, you know, the the fade in on Vietnam with the with the hooker coming up and doing the miso honey, miso honey. You know, it's like, and and you're just kind of like. Yeah, I, I don't know if you can necessarily even process what's going on. It's like, 
You know, and that's the thing where it's like there's this funny scene happening, but what you've just seen, you know, um, it, you know, is 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 like it's like haunting your after image in a way. So I mean, yeah, it, it it it's it's uh, it's it's frightening, terrible. Kubrick really gets the the kind of the adrenaline, the momentary adrenaline joy of combat in that second half. In a couple of he gets it. In the, uh, the 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 shootout that ends with the trashman surfing bird uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. sequence, oh, that's and great. then also yeah. in in the final in the final sniper sequence, the scene where um, animal mother charges in to try to go save uh, his man that's fallen, and he's shooting his gun and he's cheering and and uh, you yeah. know just hooting and you know he's having a time of his life. That moment there really does pump up the audience for. A couple of seconds, yeah. and then Cooper brings it back down again. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly. I mean, and I think you know, it's the kind of thing where he does play with the tropes of the genre. So mm-hmm. you know, there is the moment where you feel the elation, perhaps. Um, but then, then it's just there's, there's, a, there's a deadening aspect to a lot of it that, that really caps down your bloodlust. Um and, and I just feel like, you know, if more people quoted that fuller anecdote and I really hope that I am remembering it correctly, but I am pr- I am pretty certain that Rosenbaum, you know, said that he also felt uh gratitude towards how Kubrick framed filmed the the dying Viet Cong woman, um, which I think is an extraordinary uh, you know, close up of, of her. And and her whole death scene yeah. is just Amazing and and devastating. Um, it uh, you, you know I, I just feel like if you told that anecdote a bit more honestly, because and really this this highlights the dichotomy of the film and, and the split in the film. Because imagine if you know if you only told Full Metal Jacket up to the halfway point, you'd have an incomplete film. But if you tell it fully, you know, in its two halves. As you, if you tell the fuller anecdote in the two halves, oh, it's a recruiting film, but oh no, there's this emotional flourish in it that I really love. It's like that's the, that's the thing, you know, that 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 expresses the duality of this movie, and 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 again the muck of humanity I think that Kubrick is gets gets you at and is able to get you, you know, and, and, and is able to get you at that level. It's just you know, it's, it's really amazing. And, and yeah. I would think Full Metal Jacket, just, and this will be my last point on Full Metal Jacket, and that to me it's his most overtly, in a weird way, comic film since Doctor mm-hmm. Strange Love. In that, particularly, not I mean, not just not just the Arlie Army stuff, but uh, the the general who gets after Private Joker, uh, telling right. him about this peace craze has to blow over, right. and even the the final credit song choice using the Rolling Stones' "Painted Black" is is right. a is a you know it's kind of like a, a last tackle from Kubrick about right this. right well and uh, you know also you know that they're saying the the Mickey Mouse Club theme right right mm-hmm. yeah Mickey Mouse Mickey Mouse yeah right uh, yeah it's, it's but you know what I don't I mean I guess you say humor and I I feel like what Kubrick films do I like laugh at you know it's kind of like uh, and my laughter is always almost always tinged with at the, at simultaneously with regrets with sadness with um 
and not just that, with, with, with a whole mix of emotions. It's kind of like I can't just laugh and have it only be that. You know, I, I, if there's a gut laugh, I mean, I guess, I guess the thing is I probably gut laughed the most at Arlie Ermey because his string of profanities is just absolutely incredible. I mean, David Mamet on his best day could not hope to come up with the string of, you know, of, of shits and fucks and motherfuckers and, you know, skull fuck you and, and, and turn your mother into a two-dollar whore or whatever the hell, the hell it is that, that Ermey comes up with. I mean, he's amazing. You know, and he's playing himself, basically, because he's a, a drum sergeant. So, you know, and I think that was his first movie, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, he... He counseled on a movie before, but he he didn't right. have the part. He didn't have the part, and he was begging for. It. They cast another actor that's in another role in the film as that part. And Arlie Ermey, while they're shooting, took it upon himself to record all of all of all of that stuff. And that's another right. thing. Uh, he doesn't seem Kubrick never seemed to constrict his actors, uh, even though you know gossip had that he did. But I mean, he allowed Arlie Ermey to create that role. Uh, yeah, I mean, I yeah. guess if constriction is viewed as fifty plus takes or however many, you know, is rumored there are rumored that that he shot, and certainly I don't doubt that he did that. I wouldn't be surprised though if there was some kind of times where he only did two or three things too. I mean, you know, there's all this myth that arises around film productions that you even can't when he help shoots fifty takes, yeah, even when he I, shoots fifty takes, he's giving the actors the freedom to discover it in that process. He wants to be surprised in the process. He doesn't know yeah. his ultimate goal when he turns the camera on. Well, perhaps, yes. I mean, at the same time, you know, uh, pushing them. I mean, if you watch Vivian Kubrick's documentary from the set of The Shining, then you see um, uh, you see him pushing Shelley Duvall into some rather disturbing places, and you get a sense of, you know, a man who is not always very nice. But you know what? I don't think to be a film director, you can always be very nice. It's not about being nice or, or or totally mean either. I mean, you know, there's all these anecdotes that get spouted, but if, but if we should learn anything from this, it's that, you know, especially on a film set, which is very stressful, you know, for everybody involved in its own way, it can be, you know, you're not always going to have happy-go-lucky times. You're not always going to have horrible times either. You know, it's, it's a mix of things. It's a muck, you know, yeah. and... Uh, Certain things, I guess, rise up out of that that we then quote as anecdotes. But I think we have to be very careful about, you know, um, what we, you know, say is absolute factual truth and evidence of some kind of genius or evidence of some kind of character flaw. You know, certainly um, Kubrick has his flaws of character and of of directing too. I think we we need to admit, even the greats do, uh, that uh, you know. Um, that, that that should be that should be addressed in a, in a criticism of it. You know, in order to do a really good criticism of it, that's you know, you, you have to delve deep into that. Um, like the way, say, Manny Farber did with Taxi Driver, you know, Scorsese's film, where he really, if you read that piece that he and Patricia Patterson did together, it's um, a it's a it's a it's a it's a really what you would call, I suppose, a mixed piece in the best possible way, in that it finds. 
the good parts, the bad parts, the the mixed parts. It's like it's like you're it's it's like you're really being led through the muck of this film and kind of seeing its greatness through that. Um, and, uh, and 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 really, maybe those are the greatest films are the ones where you really grapple with so many different aspects of it. You know, when I was talking about like the the potential racism of The Shining, is it racist or is there more to it than that? Well, it feels like there's more to it than that. You know, whereas you know, you look at the TV version of The Shining, it's kind of like, okay, Melvin Man Peebles is a magical Negro, yeehaw. Yeah, it's like that. That's it's kind of like all it gives you. You know, mm-hmm. and you know, and it, and it's like. And, 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 you know, oh, the hedge animals are coming alive. Woo. You know, it's, it's so it's so ineptly visualized and not scary for that because it doesn't it doesn't engage, you know, the depths of your subconscious, the, your imagination, your taboos. You know, is it right? You know, when 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 Grady says when Grady says nigger, you know, it's kind of like, is he um you know, it's kind of like, is Kubrick getting off on it in a way? Is he critiquing it? Is he doing all these things at once? It's kind of like, I sense a lot of different things in there. You know, and that's, I think that's the mark of a true artist, though, is like really, you know, the the idiosyncrasies and the personal hang-ups and the insights and everything are just splayed, they're splayed out there. They're there for you to really, you know, grapple with. Um, and uh, and and it's and it's a wonderful experience, you know. Um, so when like when you were saying like mystifying before, that's a much better word than confused. Kubrick mystifies, and he still mystifies me, even though you know I've seen his films tons of times. That's why I, you know, that's why I keep coming back. You know, Lynch mystifies yeah. me. Tarkovsky mystifies me. Malick mystifies me. I, I I am amazed that at their perspectives on the world. It, uh, it, you know, I mean, in short, I, I just say, you know, it, it fills my soul. That's, that's, that's what these films do. Um, so, yeah. I mean, if, if you show me, uh, uh, I mean, I'll show you a, a, a film set without conflict and everyone had a good time, and I'll give you the Cannonball Run movies, you know. Yeah, well, sure. Or, well, with um, Duvall, Duvall, he had a goal with Duvall. I mean, and she even said it was a means to an end. I mean, that's one of the great performances, I, I, I think, in a Kubrick oh, yeah. film is Shelley Duvall. Oh, yeah. And she had to be ravaged uh, for, yeah. for a whole year. I mean, she. so I, I think if he was kind and treated her with kid gloves, she would probably not get to that place as often as she did. Yeah, and, um, you know, that's... And so, you know, it's like when, I mean, I love Dave Kerr, but when he says that, you know, he doesn't like Robert Altman's films a lot of the time because he wasn't a nice guy, it's kind of like, well, that's not a critic talking. Yeah, that's, that, that's, that's retarded. That, that, that's, that's you had a really personal animus against him, which, believe me, I understand. And, you know, I think there were probably some people, you know, uh, that I have known who are artists and or, you know, some kinds who, you know, you don't know, except for their films, who, you know, there's this animus that you just can't get over. And you kind of have to maybe admit to that and hope that you're maybe talking about Ron Howard, who clearly is a talentless hack, um, and not Robert Altman, who is, I think, clearly much better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I mean, I also don't want to be like a... I, I don't want to be like a just a, a a geek about this too much, and 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 you know it's 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 a this is this is a problem that affects 
everyone. You know, this is an issue that affects everyone in terms of how much you le- how much uh, how much you can admit to in, in your criticism of things, and whether you have really the tools to do it. You know, there's tons of things I have yet to learn um, and, and grapple with. I feel like I can grapple with Kubrick because I have seen everything that he's done, and more so, he interests me. You know, yeah. the ones the ones who who don't really interest you and yet you feel you need to grapple with because they're part of a canon, uh, that, that, those are some of the tougher ones. You know, I've mentioned time and time again about my difficulty with Ozu and how I just have not been able to get into him, and that's still the case, and I'm still trying. But just like, you know, when the interest isn't there, especially for a canonical figure, you know, that's so difficult. Um, it, it's like it's so difficult, and, and I think people probably have this with Kubrick as well. You know, it's just like where where the interest isn't there. Yeah. I had it with Kubrick. I had it with Kubrick, and and then I decided to do the series. And the really? the the only movie of his that that moved me, the one that moved me the deepest, and it still is, is, is Eyes Wide Shut. Um, but I I felt an emotional distance from his other movies. And then I, when I started the series, it was almost with a goal of of cracking that. And uh, I mean, I think right. I've done it. I, I think I've realized that you have to be on a different, you have to tune yourself a little differently when you watch a Kubrick film, yeah. uh, be, because of these distinctions that we've we've been bringing up. Um, and it, it's really been eye-opening to me. But we oh, talked okay, a lot about. Go yeah, ahead. This is interesting, if I may. It's just that you started this series, and see, I, I was coming from a, a point of, of of my own mis, misjudgment. Uh, I actually thought that you were a fan, but it seems that what you're saying is that when you started this, and, and maybe maybe you're still, and actually maybe you're still not, which would also be interesting. But yeah, you 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 started from a place of relative coldness, and uh, well, because that's how I read the films, uh, and but. I, 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 he was an artist that I admi- admired more than I appreciated his his actual films. But or that's could feel changed. loved for, I suppose. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's changed in the process of doing the show, and it, the process of doing the show has also, in the process of talking to Leon Vitali and all the other people that we've talked to, it's yeah. humanized the man for me, and it's humanized the movies uh, as well. Right. For me, and so so you know, I, I know that he is one of the greats. I mean, he he is he is a master of the form, undoubtedly. Right. I've always recognized that. I've just never felt it from his films uh, until I started this series. So I, I'm one no. of those. I'm one of those guys. <laughs> well, well no, th- this is good. I mean, I, I hope this is something that uh, you know you bring up over the course of the of the eight parts, you know, and, and kind of trace that because. I think that's that's very valuable because uh, it's very easy to um, geek out about Kubrick and uh, and just sort of look at him uncritically, or, mm-hmm. uh, or or to just accept a lot of what he does as as holy writ. And really, you can do that with any filmmaker. Uh, and it's much more difficult to really parse your own reaction and and the contradictions inherent within the films, um, and uh, still maybe to come out on the other side with only an appreciation rather than a love or maybe like you're saying maybe you're finding the love now which is which is wonderful too yeah, it's wonderful I also, when, yeah go on the, the the other thing that i i admire about his work too is and you've spoken to to this is that you revisit these films and 
their meaning deepens for you uh, because yeah. because you've matured. They're, the films mature with you. I mean, you, yeah. uh, you know, and it happens critically too. I mean, more people have kind of recanted on their original critiques of Kubrick's films and gone back and said, "Oh, I misjudged. I'm sorry." You know, right? That a lot of other filmmakers I could think of, and you know, a film like The Shining. Uh, I I was looking at it for what it wasn't instead of what it was, what his aims were, it, because I thought, yeah. I while the book it, it might be subpar, the concept of of the the loving father that slipped prior because of alcoholism, uh, he was right. capable of that behavior, but he was trying his best. He was a loving father, and and the descent into madness that was that held the fear in that story to me. So when right. he takes a choice like Jack Nicholson as his lead actor, that's making a point. <laughs> the direction yeah. he wants to go. Jack starts kind of kind of leering and a and a little manic at the beginning and, and he just goes higher and higher and higher and higher throughout yeah. the film. So that's a different aim. So it took me it took me a while, I mean a while, to to figure out <laughs> to figure that out and, and view it for what he was trying to do instead of what I thought he should have tried to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I would also say though that for for the people who who either fall in love with Kubrick late in the game, or maybe renege on some of their love, or or, or changing, or, or saying, oh, I didn't get it then, but I get it now, I'd almost like to see it more as people saying, well, I felt this way back then, and maybe seeing the validity in that. You know, and to take my own case, um, I'm not that high on Clockwork Orange now. But I, that doesn't mean that the way I felt about it when I was younger is was wrong. I think it was just right at the time. You know, and I'd like really to see more criticism like this, where maybe you keep revisiting certain things and you kind of trace your mutating feelings towards them um, yeah. and, and, and maybe come out to a point, though, uh, where you're not saying, oh, I get it now. No, it's more. This is what this is what I think now, which is not necessarily, you know, which is not necessarily invalidate what I thought then. I mean, certainly you can look at things like, oh, I got some facts wrong somewhere or, or, or whatever, and you can change your opinion based on that. But in the realm of feeling and emotion and what stirs you, I would say, you know, don't deny what you felt, um, because mm -hmm. again. Clockwork Orange was really, really important to me. I really responded to its rebelliousness, to its, um, its over-the-topness, to its graphicness. Um, I think certainly I was looking for some kind of sexual outlet, and you know, it, and it and it gave it to me in a very exaggerated, horrible form. Um, you know, you know, killing someone with a with a with a gigantic like penis sculpture and all this. It, it, you know, it's just like it was kind of like. You know, like when Shelley Duvall sees the the dog, the the guy in the dog costume giving the blowjob, it's kind of like you're seeing these forbidden things, and it's kind of like you need that, you need that in some way. Then you go past, you know, you go past that particular age. You know, you say mature. I've always tried to stay away from the word mature because I feel like so many people have used it like, oh, Tarantino's finally matured, and this, that, and the other thing. I'm just like, oh, 
you know, where Spielberg made his first mature adult film. And I'm like, what, what are these people, cheeses that age or something? You know, it's like I, 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 I don't like necessarily comparing them to that. I also think that, you know, in the case of Tarantino and Spielberg, they always knew how to make movies. That was never, you know, it was just like what they made then is not what they're making now. You know, judge it a little bit differently rather than oh they've matured into something because I just feel like that's a bit too easy of a easy of a leap. You know, I mean this is me. I, I really recoil from that word. Frankly, I, I mean I think we we gain knowledge, we gain insight as we go along. At least hopefully that's the gain. You always want to be educating yourself and always want to be bringing new stuff into your your psyche and your persons so that your your uh, you know. You, you're just so you're, 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 I guess you're growing and, and you're filling your soul. It's, again, it's a filling the soul kind of thing. It's a nourishing of the soul. Well, you know, that's as, what, as, uh, as a fellow critic, I can attest that uh, maturation and criticism means uh, almost seems to be uh, tandem with getting cranky. So it's you know. It's, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You see, that's another thing. It's kind of like, and and as you get cranky, honestly, I think you do some immature things. E.g., I'm going to bring up. John Rosenbaum again, love him, but when he kept knocking Inglorious Bastards, just like saying, I'm still waiting for people to explain to me what they see in this, blah, 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 you know, it was ridiculous. You know, it's, I have no quarrel with him disliking Inglorious Bastards, but to dislike it as superficially as he did was where I had my issue, because that, because that helped no one. That served no one. It was not. It was not. It was not. Uh, it was not a good example of criticism. And right. again, I you know, and I would def, I would hold myself to the exact same standards. And there have been times where I have done exactly what he has done because it is easier to dismiss something with a flick of the hand rather than a uh, you know a really focused, intense look at things. But when you come to something like that, probably what you need to do is take a step back and say, you know what, I'm going to keep my mouth shut on this. Until I have something more substantive to say, pro or pro or con, you know, uh, that's 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 the tough thing to do because you want to feel like you're part of the dialogue. Right. Um, and, well, you, you, know, you bring up yeah. you, you brought up one director, and I wanted to, and I'm sure Jamie's going to bring this up, but I'll, I'll ask yeah. it. And then you, you brought up Spielberg here, and yeah. so, and Spielberg obviously, like all of us, is one of your also one of your favorite filmmakers. Yeah, all of us here. Well, absolutely. so. What are your feelings about the, you know, the posthumous Kubrick Spielberg collaboration of of AI? What do you see because ah. everyone the majority of people said be it filmgoers or even even some critic in critical circles said those are the two those two temperaments do not match. And yet for those of us who like AI and, and admire AI, uh we see the connection all over the place. Yeah, you know, um I love that film. I didn't love it when I first saw it. I came to love it pretty immediately, though, after. I, I gave it a quick review um, after I'd seen it the first time. And I just chalked it up to the audience being really hostile at the first screening, which they were. Um, and that made me very uncomfortable. But, I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing where reams could be written about the Spielberg-Kubrick uh, collaboration or lack thereof and, and, um, and have been written. I mean, 
and I would again, you know, I'll, I'll give, uh, go to Jonathan Rosenbaum's review of AI. That's one of the best pieces written on the film, and that's coming from a spiel, from a frequent Spielberg detractor. And that's an example of when he is spot on in terms of how, you know, uh, in terms of really examining a film, you know, in in all its um, in all its complexity. I mean, he talks about things in that that he doesn't like, like he doesn't like the way uh, the crowd at the plush fair is is portrayed. But you know, ultimately. These are kind of like niggling flaws to him, but every you know pretty much every film has something like that that you just really dislike, you know, or, or that something kind of rubs you the wrong way, but you accept it within the context of the larger whole or whatever. Um, I mean, as far as what I see in AI, um, certainly I think the first section has a kind of Kubrick coldness to it that's very interesting. You know, the way he shoots the um, the sleeping chamber where um, where 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 their son is 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 frozen, you know, um, where there's like all these fairy tales on the wall, but the light is very harsh in there, and it feels like the camera is placed about 50 billion feet back, you, you know, within the space, um, and it's just very eerie and stuff. Um, and then you know, but at the same time, it's like, I mean, the end. If if we take the official story as what as how it's been told. Um, the way that Kubrick said, this is more your temperament than mine. I think he might have realized that where the ending needs to go is something Spielberg could do in his sleep, and which he did, which is to play that ending entirely straight, which is that play it as a happy ending. Play it as the most sentimental, schmaltzy you know, thing that you possibly can. And he is capable of doing that in his sleep. That is instinctual to him. But in doing that, again, it's kind of like, it's kind of like, you know, and hear me stupidly again saying, oh, it should have ended with David under the sea saying, fairy grant my wish, fairy grant my wish, blah, 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 blah. But no, it shouldn't end that way. It should end with David getting his wish. And Spielberg killing the entire human race? Have we not noticed this? That the entire human race is dead and the only and the only the only remnant of them is a robot boy who wants his mommy. Think about that for a second. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean um that's kind of the opposite of two thousand and one, which is like believes in the perpetuation of the human species. I mean, here we're talking about Spielberg, who's like painted as the perpetual optimist, um, killing the human race and basically saying that they're only going to be remembered by, you know, a, a mechanical thing that wants his mom and basically that is then has his, you know, wish appeased by the people over who now view him essentially as their god. You know, and the movie is basically is basically seen, I think, as kind of a biblical uh, reminiscence, or or as a biblical text, a biblical story. You know, because the first voice you hear in the movie is Ben Kingsley's Mecca. You know, he's saying this happened in the days of the great floods and blah 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 and and all that. So he's basically invoking all these biblical allusions and, and saying all these biblical allusions and telling the story of David there. Savior, their God, their Messiah, whatever you want to call it, and then telling that story from that perspective. So if you look at this, if you look at the film perspectively from where it's coming from and what it's doing and and where it goes, 
it's um I think it it might be more disturbing in some ways than Kubrick ever ever imagined because Kubrick doesn't kill the human race in 2001. I don't think he ever kills the human race. People die, but the human race is still around. Spielberg killed humanity. Humanity is gone at the end of AI, completely. You know, that is like, and when he says, and when Kubrick says, this, this is more on your sensibilities than mine, I think he knows, A, because Spielberg knows how to do schmaltz. You know, but he also has this dark side to his subconscious that is very clear in his films. And I think it's there even in the early stuff. You know, even, you know, nobody kills some, nobody kills a human being like Spielberg does. If you think of, if you think of Quint dying in Jaws, if you think of, uh, if you think of the way the, the pods kill, um, you know, the humans in, in more of the world, if you, if you think of the way of the, de- of the assassination scenes in Munich, uh, if you even think of the atomic bomb sequence in Crystal Skull and the way it obliterates all the, all the mannequins even, there is horror in Spielberg that a lot of people do not address. That in Temple I think of Doom, he, he, uh, he yeah. incinerates someone after ripping their heart out. And, uh, yeah, 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 exactly. And, you know, Jaws, while they're still while they're still alive, with their heart having been ripped out. <laughs> I mean, I mean, this man is, you know, he he, I think in in their friendship, you know, probably, you know, Kubrick is seen as um, a pessimist when I think he was more maybe of an optimist than people gave him credit for. And Spielberg is more, perhaps, of a pessimist than people might even give him credit for being seen more of an optimist. You know, it's kind of like, what are these unexplored threads in these filmmakers, you know, movies? Uh, and, I mean, it is fascinating to see because I feel like both, both, these, both these men coming together have a public perception, you know, or, or they, they have a public persona that people see. But there's a hidden side to them, you know, an optimist perhaps in the Kubrick sense and a real kind of dark, uh, pessimistic sense to Spielberg that is not really addressed. You know, I mean, and I, and I, I, mean, I even say in, in like the, the Indiana Jones movie, the new one, you know, if you look at the end scene, the wedding scene between him and Marion, it's really exaggerated to look, they kind of look like the mannequins in, in, the, in the atomic bomb test sequence. It looks fake in a way. And I think it's kind of like, you know, that tension is there in Spielberg, especially from AI on. It becomes much more explicit. But I think it's there in a lot of his earlier films as well. And I think if you apply that to Kubrick, similarly, you know, there's there's more to Kubrick than this cult that you see, which, Jamie, you seem to have discovered, you know, in, in yeah. doing doing the series. You know, so it's just like, you know, there there's more, there's more, there are more to these, there, there are more to these human beings than their public, you know, persona, and there are more. There's more to a great artist than just what you think they're, just what you think you see, you know. Um, and I think, um, you know, Kubrick and Spielberg um, definitely are both two great artists who really divide people, um, and are not given their due even by the people who love them, you know. And when I say give them their due. 
that means dealing with the things that really annoy you about them as well. Spielberg annoys me a lot more, perhaps, explicitly than Kubrick does. Um, albeit, you know, when seeing Clockwork Orange again, I found a lot of things to annoy me in it. Um, so, I mean, you know, it, it's there, but I think this is where what criticism needs to do is really to delve into that, to really not just prop something up as perfect and unassailable. Um, so, you know, you can hear me enthuse about Kubrick, and I do, and I enthuse about Spielberg, too, but, you know, there are real issues that you have to take uh, a look at when you go through their filmographies, and I think you have to do the same thing with Tarkovsky, you have to do the same thing with Griffith, and not, you know, like all all the people who are truly great are are great because they are flawed, because they are putting all their humanity on screen, all their heart and soul out there for you to see. That is, I think, the hallmark of a great artist, and you know, it, and they're not just there to you know, make you feel exalted or, you know, other things, you know, it, it's, it's much more complicated than that, so. Yeah. Thank you. 